0: Okay, let me lay out what I believe the plan going forward on Sunday night is. I thought about it for a long time. We first started the church, uh, we, uh, in Sunday school, we went through some of the books of the Bible, beginning of the Bible, in a survey kind of fashion Genesis through De- uh, Numbers. We really spent some time in Numbers. <laughs> and then Deuteronomy to some degree or another, I don't remember exactly. Sunday nights, I was going through Daniel, big mistake. <laughs> And, uh, and then uh, Micah, another mistake, <laughs> not easy books at all, it's chapter 7 through 12, Daniel, not easy at all, I don't recommend you do Daniel 7 through 12, Daniel 1 through 6, yes. And so after that I was wondering what to do, we talked about it and I decided on Judges and we did that, the only thing I regret is why did I not go through Joshua before Judges, I don't know why, but uh, Anyway, then we went through Ruth, because I thought, well, Ruth is is part of Judges. It happened in the days of the Judges, so we went through Ruth as well, did that. And then we kept going in chronological order. I thought, well, what do we do next? I thought, well, let's just keep going. First Samuel, second Samuel, we did that. And then we took a detour. I thought we'd take a break for for a little while and then go through Malachi. We did that. And then I've discussed it with Mike as to what to do. And we more or less decided to go through in a chronological way through the Bible, so my plan is to go through the books of First and Second Kings at this point. Um, I do not plan on going through First and Second Chronicles. There's so much repeated material, although there's a different emphasis. I'm going to bring in that material to Kings as it um, relates to the subject. At times, so we're going to be consulting Chronicles, especially Second Chronicles, because that's where really uh, a lot of the material is. Sometimes you have a story of a given king and Kings, and then it's not finished, you know, and then. You read that this guy was a great king, and then all of a sudden God killed him. And you're like, what happened? Well, the rest of the story is in 2 Chronicles, and it tells you what happened. So we'll bring that in when we need to. We may do a survey of Chronicles one day, I'm not sure, uh, just a survey sermon. But along the way, this may happen. Uh, I'm using the word may a lot. This is a good word to use. We might. A lot of books were written during the time of the Kings and Chronicles, a lot of history. Uh, prophets were written during that time and in, in different books, so we may depart on our course while we're going through first and second kings, and go through another book as it, as it comes into play during the chronology, so we can see the chronology of it all, may do that and then come back to first and second kings. So those are all possibilities. Now as for Psalm 119, what's going on with that? Well, it was never my intention from the beginning to go straight through Psalm 119. It wasn't my plan, at least. But my plan was to go through one little eight-verse section. There's 22 of them. Every once in a while. Because that way, we can have it can remind us of the importance of the Word of God. So every great once in a while, we will go back to Psalm 119 just as a reminder. Now, tonight, I want to do something I, never, I don't normally do. I don't even like doing this. I wrestled most of the week trying to figure out whether I was going to do this thing or not. And it kind of came together at the end. And then I still, to this moment, am questioning this whole thing. <laughs> but... This is what happens when you do this business. We're going to spend our time tonight on an overview of 1st and 2nd Kings, an overview. That way we'll get a, a big picture of what's going on in this whole, whole realm of 1st and 2nd Kings. We'll be able to see the, the whole before we look at the parts. And I think that's, that's good in many ways. We'll be able to see the big overall context. So I think it's a good thing overall. We'll see what happens with it tonight. Well anyway, like, like Samuel, like the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings were originally one book. They weren't first and 2nd Kings. It was just Kings. That's how it was. Everybody saw it that way. But then the Septuagint, which was written the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was written in the second, third centuries BC. They divided the books up into 1 and Second Kings, probably for convenience sake, to make it because it was long and so because of their length, they decided for convenience sake to divide it up. But when you look at 1st and 2nd Kings, don't look at it as separate books. Look at it as together one story because it truly is one story. 2nd Kings simply continues the story begun under first, uh, with 1st Kings. Now who, who wrote 1 and 2nd Kings? Nobody knows. There's been some guesses as to it as to who wrote it. Some uh, many thought in the past it was Jeremiah. Jeremiah had seen uh, had lived in a time where he could possibly have written it. Some people think Ezra wrote it, some people, Ezekiel, nobody knows. In all probability, the guy that wrote it was, and there's a debate about did different authors write it or one. and I believe the answer is one person wrote this. In all probability, it was written in the Babylonian exile to a guy who lived during that time period in the middle of the 6th century. And he has the vantage point of looking back. This is middle of 6th century B.C. Um, he's, he can look back over the history of Israel and uh, see, and he records for us what happened during, those, during that time period. Uh, the books together, first and second t- uh, uh, kings they cover uh, the time period from the reign of Solomon all the way to the Babylonian captivity. Solomon's reign to the Babylonian captivity. That's over 400 years. Now that's a long time. How would you like to record 400 years of history? What would you say? I mean, how would you even do it? It's not an easy task. Now, there are several, the author of the 1st 2nd Kings uses several sources to help him write these books. The sources are mentioned in the 1st and 2nd Kings. For example, look with me, if you will, and tonight we'll look at several verses. Look at 1st Kings chapter 11, verse 41, and you're going to see one of the sources he used to write this book, write these books, rather. I may refer to it as a book, since it's a single, it's a single book in my mind. 1st Kings eleven forty-one. 41 the writer says something. Like, Have you ever read this in your Bible? Things like this, and you wonder what it was. Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon and whatever he did, his wisdom— are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? What's the book of the Acts of Solomon? That's not a book in the Bible anywhere. Um, look at First uh, Kings chapter fourteen, verse nineteen. First Kings fourteen nineteen. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war, how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Um, there, is, there is the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. There's also other chronicles that were written that are historical sources. Look at 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 29. The rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. So you have these, these are historical sources actually mentioned in these books. They're historical sources, true sources, used by the author of 1st and 2nd Kings. Now the question is, how does that affect inspiration? How does it affect inspiration? It doesn't. Not at all. Because the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all is God breathed, is given by the inspiration of God. That's it. That's the answer. And so we know God inspired his words, foundational truth. But understand that inspiration doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. God spoke through men, and men wrote down the word. We talk about dual authorship. We've mentioned that here before. We mean by that that God is the ultimate author of Scripture, and then He used men to pen down His Word. They're also authors of Scripture. Second Peter 1.21. Holy men of God spoke, right? Holy men of God spoke. The prophets of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's how it happened. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Inspiration. God inspired His Word. Men wrote it down. That's what, that's what happened. But that does not mean that God can't use historical sources as a part of the process of inspiration. And if you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see that he sure did do that at times. He did that. Now, the author of First and Second Kings had no issue with the sources. He used them to his purposes. That's all within the realm of how God brought about the, these books of First and Second Kings. So under the superintendence of God, the author accessed these books. Somehow he had access to them. And he used these books as sources like Acts of Solomon, now, the question arises, does that mean the Acts of Solomon is inspired? No, it does not. The Acts of Solomon is not inspired. It's just It's it's historical document. It's true. But whatever the Lord includes in his word is inspired. If he took a piece of the Acts of Solomon and put it in his word, that's, that is an inspired word of God the way he did it. If he chooses to do this, it's his business. Just, you know, Think about this for a minute. Inspiration is somewhat of a mystery. I think any of us can really uh, like, the, like the Trinity, or things of that nature, we can't really fully understand how this worked. But God did this. And keep in mind, we're talking about over 400 years of history. And so, these, these kind of things were used. The guy in, in the Babylonian exile that wrote this was brought into the, by the providence of God into possession of these documents. However, he came about them and used them. Uh, look, look at Luke chapter 1 for another example, similar, uh, an example of this kind of thing. Luke one verses one to four. It's not so unusual. Luke one one to four. Luke says, "Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write." It out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke is not an apostle. He dealt with apostles, he got information from apostles, things handed down from the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses were the apostles. He investigates carefully everything. It seemed good to him also to to write an account out, he says. But with all this, that's the human writer's personality and, and the way he's, being, he's seeing things, but God used him to write the Word. God inspired the Word. Luke wrote it down. He investigated everything carefully. So, is the Lord can find a one way of inspiration? Exactly. No, he can do this how he wants to. He inspired his Word. Understand that. It's his business. But how he does it, is, it may change and vary a little bit from time to time. For example, using historical sources. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been on a jury? I've been on a few juries and, and you always see this person in front typing out every word in the court, called a court reporter. Types out every word and, uh, that's said. And uh, just like mechanic, mechanical dictation, whatever word's said, that court reporter writes it down, that's it, just that word and that word only. And sometimes they'll say, scratch that from the record and they'll take that off. And that's what they do. Well, the Bible writers were not like court reporters was not a mechanical dictation. They weren't robots. They were authors. They were composers. God used their personalities. You have to understand that's how it was. For example, Psalm 119. The way that guy put it together was like an acrostic in the Hebrew. He uses all the Hebrew uh, alphabet to put it together in, in a poetic fashion. I mean, they used their personalities. They used their style. God allowed all that to be done. And they used their style, and they wrote the Word of God down they wrote exactly what they, he wanted them to write down with all that. So sometimes they use these materials, source materials, and we're talking about 400 years of history plus, and so this material is selective. I mean, read through First and Second Kings. That's not 400 years of history to the exact detail. Quite, quite far from it. Certain things are recorded. Certain things are, many things are omitted because why? We only need what the Lord wants us to have, right? His word What we have in First and Second Kings is exactly what God wanted us to have. You know, a lot of times we spend, we spend time looking for answers to questions that God never revealed the answer to. We're always asking questions. maybe the Lord's hidden things from our eyes, Deuteronomy 29:29, 29, 29, "The secret things belong to the Lord God to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So what we need to concern ourselves with is what? The things that have been revealed, the word that will alone occupy all of our time. We are not going to get to that probably in this lifetime. So, what is the storyline of this inspired book uh, of the Bible, First and Second Kings? Is it just a bunch of? Have you ever read through? How many people here? I hate to even ask this question. I won't ask the question. Just think to yourself: Have you read through First, Second Kings or not? If you have, is it just a bunch of names of kings that are hard to pronounce? and some history thrown in for good measure just to keep you confused and bored. Is that what you see out of 1 and Second Kings? Oh, boy, my Bible reading day says I've got to read 1 Kings 1 to 3. And, you're, and you read that, and, you, and or 13 to 16, you read that and you say to yourself, I don't know what's going on here. bunch of history, I'm kind of bored by the whole thing. Do you have to be a, a history teacher like Mike Liptak to appreciate these books? Is that what it is? Well, you know, every book in the Bible has some kind of a rhyme or reason to it. There's a reason it was written. Whatever the Lord's inspired was for a purpose. The problem we have is we're not disciplined enough to find out what the purpose is by studying it. We don't do that. See, we don't. The fact of the matter is, I'm convinced a lot of believers don't even really read the Bible seriously. I think they read it to some degree, but very little. And so, what is the message? What is the purpose for First and Second Kings? What's the message of First and Second Kings? Well, I think these books are about this. They're about the continued rise and fall of Israel as a nation. I said the continued rise and fall of Israel as a nation. rise of Israel began under David. It continues to climb under Solomon. But it also begins to fall under Solomon. Rise and fall of the, of the uh, Israeli uh, kingdom. First and Second Kings show how and why Israel fell. It will show us how they fell. It will show us why they fell. And we can learn from all this as we look at this and the total disaster they made of everything. If we we learn from this book, we can be uh, the people that will please God. As one writer said of 1 and 2 Kings, they fell from the heights of national prosperity to the depths of conquest and exile. All the way to national, they were very prosperous, and they fell to conquest and exile. And why did it happen? It happened because of their unfaithfulness to God. It happened because of their sustained disobedience to the word of God. They did not obey the word of God again and again. They failed to obey it. If I were to give a title to these books, these two books, First and Second Kings, I would borrow a phrase from 2 Samuel chapter one. In that chapter, David is is grieved because uh, King Saul has died, Jonathan his son has died, and at the last verse of the chapter, David says in his grief, "How the mighty have fallen! How the mighty have fallen!" Now that's how I would summarize First and Second Kings: the mighty have fallen. They were once mighty, they fell, and when they fell, it was a hard fall. The Lord gave them every opportunity, but they refused the grace of God, and so they ended up in disgrace. This is really, honestly, a tragic story, First and Second Kings. It's sp- the story of the decline, spiritual decline, of the nation of Israel. Now, let's trace that, that continued rise and fall of Israel as we briefly look at the contents of 1 and 2 Kings. We'll just go through this briefly and look at some verses, and we'll show you what kind of what's going on throughout the whole, so we can trace this story from beginning to end in a big picture look. These two books, is it? No. Ben, you're on. These two books can be basically divided into three different parts. Um, And I'm going to give you those right now, three different parts. First of all, the reign of Solomon, that's chapters 1 through 11. I'm going to put it up, Ben's going to put it up here so you can see this. The reign of Solomon, verses 1 through 11. I'm sorry, chapters 1 through 11. Secondly, the divided kingdom. That's, 2 Kings 12 through 2 Kings, that's 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings 17. 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17. Now that section, the divided kingdom, ends with the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then you have a third section, the last days of the kingdom of Judah, 2 Kings 18 to 25. That ends with the fall of the southern king of Judah. Both sides of the equation fall, Israel and Judah, in, the, in these books. That's a, a really good summary, I think, from rise to fall. Let's start with the reign of Solomon, First Kings chapters 1 through 11. In chapters 1 through 10 uh, of, of, of these 11 chapters, we have the rise of Solomon. There is a glitch in chapter 1 that takes place, but it's, they, get a, they get past that, and aside from that, it's smooth sailing from then on all the way through chapter 10. Chapter 11 records the downfall of Solomon. So, first, the first 10 chapters, the rise of Solomon. Chapter 11, the downfall of Solomon. And from there, the whole nation is affected. That glitch I referred to in chapter 1 is a threat to the kingdom. The kingdom is intended for Solomon, but a guy named Adonijah, and we'll go through this uh, chapter by chapter, he, he decides he wants the kingdom for himself. He tries to usurp that kingdom away, but he is thwarted in his efforts. And Solomon becomes the king. So far, so good. A threat's been averted. The kingdom is in Solomon's hands now, and and things are good. In chapter 2, David, who is getting older, is an old man at the time, he gives Solomon final words of advice. And we read his obituary in chapter 2, verse 10. Look at chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. It says, And David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. Thirty-three years he reigned in Jerusalem. So the greatest king of Israel is now dead. But but Solomon's kingdom is going to exceed David's in in glory. Chapter 3 goes on. It makes an issue of the wisdom of Solomon. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. He's just becoming the king. God says, ask me for something in verse 5. Uh, it says, In giving the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for us for him this great loving kindness that you have given him, a son to sit on the throne, his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your of people which you have chosen, a, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Solomon does the right thing. And it shows an act of wisdom that even asks for wisdom, right? He could have asked for anything. But Solomon chose the right thing, chose wisdom that's far greater than any, far more valuable than any wealth or riches you will ever have, to have the wisdom of God. He made the right choice. And then he demonstrates that wisdom in chapter 3 with a naughty problem involving a baby, and we'll get to that as we go through chapter 3. Chapter 4 concerns the officials of his kingdom. It talks about all his officials. It talks about the extent of his kingdom. It talks about the great prosperity of his kingdom. Israel is absolutely prosperous at this time. You have to get the point there. Israel is prosperous under Solomon. Greatly blessed by God under this man's leadership. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. 4.21 says, Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Verse 24. For he had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tifsah even to Gaza, all, over all the kings, west of the river. And he had peace on all sides around him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree. That's, a, that's an idea of under his vine and his fig tree of being safe and content and happy and prosperous. From Dan even to Beersheba, that's from north to south, all the days of Solomon. Look at verse 29. Now Solomon, now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and a breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. So you have all this great leadership under Solomon, all this great blessing from God. Everything is great. Chapters 5 through 7 record the preparation and building of the temple. The temple that that David had planned for so long now, the temple David wanted to build, is now going to be built by his son Solomon. David was not allowed to build that temple. And and, and then uh, the temple is built. They dedicate the temple. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, so the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Amazing thing. The glory of the Lord fills the temple just like it did in the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. Same thing is repeated here. So God's blessing is clearly on this whole situation. It's on the temple. It's on all that Solomon's doing. The blessing of God is is in every way possible upon the land of Israel. Uh, There's great joy throughout the land. Uh, Things are going great. They recognize the goodness of the Lord. Uh, It's a wonderful time in Israel. Look at chapter 8, the last verse. On the eighth day, they're having a time of feasting. He sent the people away, and they blessed the king. Then they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and his servant and to Israel's people. Everything is going great. Life is good. They're prosperous. What could possibly go wrong with this whole situation? Chapter 9, the Lord appears to Solomon a second time. In this chapter, the Lord places a condition upon the leadership of Solomon. This is interesting. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. Everything's going great so far, 9.4, 9.4, the Lord says, As for you, Solomon, if you will walk before me, as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will, <clears throat> I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised your father David, saying, You shall not like a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons, turn, indeed, turn away from following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, so Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. and This house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hissed and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house, this temple? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and adopted other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. It's a clear warning here to Solomon of idolatry. He says, whatever you do, Solomon, don't get involved in idolatry, or you're going to be judged severely. Question, do you think Solomon's going to heed that warning? You ever been warned by the scripture about something? And then you later on fell, that same... Warning, you succumb to the, whatever it was. Here Solomon faces a, a, a warning from God. Chapter 10, we have a visit from the Queen of Sheba. Nice to have her come and visit. And she comes to test Solomon with difficult questions. She's going to find out, is this guy really as smart as everybody's saying he is? And she comes with hard questions to ask. She asks her questions, look at her response in verse 8 after she has all her questions answered. She says this, How blessed are your men, and how blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And so you can see she is obviously blown away. She's blown away, quite frankly, in this chapter by the wisdom of Solomon. And again this chapter continues as you go on to emphasize his wealth and his wisdom and greatness and prosperity. Things are great. Again the kingdom is flourishing. Things are prosperous and if we continued that way throughout the first and second kings there'd be a different ending. If that's how it continued. But unfortunately, we must turn the page and read the next chapter. And that's where our balloon's going to be burst. Look at chapter 11 verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. This is the first negative thing said about Solomon in all these chapters. And as a result, the judgment of God is sure, it's swift, it's definite. Look at verse 11. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant." Wow. What a turn of events from how this thing started, it was so great. It started so great and so wonderful. And now it's falling, he's going to be torn apart. The kingdom's going to be torn from him. Now, if you haven't read this chapter before, you're probably surprised and shocked to see this. So that's the reign of Solomon, the first 11 chapters, poor, a great beginning, poor finish. Secondly, the second main section of 1st and 2nd Kings, the divided kingdom. 1st Kings, keep this in your head, 1st Kings 12 is a key chapter in 1st and 2nd Kings. 1st Kings 12 is a key chapter. It's where the kingdom of Israel divides in two. There's going to be a kingdom in the north, usually called Israel, and a kingdom in the south, usually called, referred to as Judah, although it's called different names throughout the Old Testament. By the way, the kingdom was united throughout its first three kings, right? Saul, David, and... and uh, Solomon, to begin with, well, Solomon period, it's going to be divided now after Solomon's reign. You know, if you, had a, if you could see this on TV, you'd have to have a split screen, right? So you could see what was going on with, the, I think, 20 kings of Israel on one side of the screen, and at the same time, what's going on with the 20 kings of Judah on the other side of the screen. That would be helpful to see. The section, this section is where people get confused reading the Bible. Have you ever been confused reading the Bible in 1 and 2 Kings, when you get to the divided kingdom? And you see all these, you're reading about one king in Israel, and then it switches, and you're reading about a king reigning simultaneously in Judah, and then it moves back to another king in Israel, and then it goes back to a king in Judah, and back and forth like that, and after a while you're reading, and you're kind of sleepy, and you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, who's, what king am I reading about? I can't remember. And then you trace it back, you know, you go back and, where's this guy? And and you find his name, oh yeah, that's who the guy was. And you pick it up again. Um, You know? You, and, and then you get all the names of the king's jumble up in your head, right? And you go, and you go to sleep having nightmares, right, about guys like, uh, you know, Rehoboam and Jeroboam and Omri and Zimri and Pekahiah and, and uh, all these other guys, Pekahiah and Jeconiah. And, and uh, it just goes on, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. It's like, why did you have to throw that little, seriously, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim? How close is that? You wake up with a cold sweat after your nightmare, right? <laughs> Whose fault is all that? You can blame it on Solomon, right? Blame it on Solomon. You can thank him. As David complicated our, unnecessarily our Bible reading with all his wives, Solomon unnecessarily complicates our Bible reading with all these, this divided kingdom business. It's his fault. He started it, okay? You can blame him. It, it, you know... You ever gotten lost in this split-screen split section, uh, split section like that? I mean, it's confusing, right, sometimes. You've got to stick with it. But th- isn't that what sin does? It can, complicates matters. Never, it's never, Sin never makes things easier. It always further complicates them to the point that sometimes you have no idea that down the road that thing was going to happen. And you're, it's all complicated. And you talk to people who are in a mess in their lives, and it gets complicated, and you can't figure it. And we get complicated in the mess in our lives, right? That's what sin does. And this goes all the way to 2 Kings chapter 17, the this, this split kingdom, the divided kingdom. Fortunately for us, while all this confusion is taking place, two prophets appear on the scene. Two really good guys, Elijah and Elisha. And they're a welcome relief, right, to the wicked kings we keep encountering. And you're going to find these guys, Elijah and Elisha, in 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 13. 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 13. Elijah is the prophet who stands up against the wicked king Ahab. He's the guy who prays for rain, uh, for it to stop raining as a judgment on Israel. And then three years later, he prays that it will rain, and it does, and those things happen. He also stands up against the false prophets of Baal. He's very bold, this guy Elijah. But the same Elijah who stood up against a king, the wicked king Ahab runs when his wife, even more wicked queen Jezebel, threatens his life. And that proves that even the greatest of prophets are subject to the temptations of the flesh, like we are, right? It doesn't matter who you are. We all have to deal with this. We can experience spiritual de- victory today and then spiritual defeat tomorrow, which is why Jesus said, watch and pray, right? I always have to look to the Lord. But that episode aside, ep- uh, Elijah stands strong against evil against, and proclaims judgment on the wicked king Ahab, against his family, and, and, and then eventually... He's taken to heaven without dying. Look at Second Kings chapter two. Second Kings chapter two, verse eleven. Second Kings two eleven. Disregarding the chapter division break in Second Kings, we just go on to the same story. Second Kings two eleven. As they were going along, Elijah and Elijah were going along talking. Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elijah goes straight to heaven. Uh, just an amazing thing. And one thing we learn here about this is people that are used of God don't hang around forever. You're not going to have your, your, your favorite preacher forever or your favorite spiritual leader you look to forever. He's not going to be around forever. People die. People pass off the scene. In this case, he went straight to heaven. Very unusual. Everybody passes off the scene. One thing you learn about this is God works through people, Right? But we never want to make it about the, pe- the people. I can imagine these guys back then, man, Elijah's dead. What are we going to do now? But God's still alive, right? We still have God to serve. We don't ever want everyone to make it around the, uh, about the person. But the, 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 now, Elijah was a great prophet, yes. But James says he was a man of like passions as we are. Same nature as we have. And so it's not only the Elijahs and Elishas of the world that God can work through, by the way. He can work through anyone who submits himself to him. So the Lord takes away one prophet. He replaces him with another prophet. Look at 2 Kings 2.12. Elisha saw Elijah going up, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord God? the Lord, the God of Elijah. And when he had also struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. So the, you can see, too, now Elijah had done miracles. Now Elisha does miracles. By the way, you don't see clusters of miracles too often in the Bible. You see it with Moses and those guys back in his time. You see it with Elijah and Elisha. You see it with Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. But you see it here. <clears throat> this is interesting, <clears throat> because he does. Elisha does all these miracles. The widow's oil is increased, and loaves are multiplied, and a woman's son is raised from the dead, Uh, there's a poisonous pot of food that's made edible, all these things, and more happen. And so, listen to this, in the midst of evil, this is an evil time in Israel, wicked kings are reigning, in the midst of all this evil, God's grace is shown through the miracles, and through having these two prophets on the scene, amazing that God always has his witnesses. And so... Undeserving people, yes, but God shows his grace. We could testify to the same thing, couldn't we? God showed his grace to us, undeserving people. But then the Lord raises up a man, especially appointed by God, to carry out the wrath of God on the family of Ahab. Ahab was a wicked king. That man's name is Jehu. Look at 2 Kings chapter 9. <clears throat> he is appointed by God to eradicate idolatry. And he he goes at it. 2 Kings chapter 9. Just to give it a flavor of his personality, look at 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 16, the first phrase. Then Jehu rode in a chariot, see that? Look at verse 20, a lookout spots Jehu riding his chariot. Look what he says in verse 20, at the end of the char- at the end of the phrase, or, or the last phrase of the sentence, and the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Everything that Jehu did was furious. He did everything in, in, in a manner that was just furious. He, he took care of business. In the process of time, he slays the 70 sons of Ahab. He slays the uh, prophets and priests of Baal, worshippers of Baal. He carries out God's wrath with a vengeance. He takes care of business. There's no messing around with Jehu at all. He gets the job done. And if anybody thinks that God is not a God of judgment, they have either never read First and Second Kings or, have, or rejected it outright, one of the two because it talks about judgment. Now, believers must understand the multifaceted character of God. God is not just one thing. He's love, he's, he's judgment, he's justice, he's wisdom, holiness, and so on and so forth. He's long-suffering. Yes, he's extremely long-suffering, but he's not. his patience is not going to last forever. He's going to get his justice. Everyone who rejects Christ is going to find that out. Everyone who rejects Christ is playing with fire, by the way, and they're going to end up in the eternal fire, sadly, but if they don't repent. But God is gracious also, and he'll forgive all who come to him. But having noted that Jehu was obedient to carry out the Lord's wrath, he is not a perfect man. Look at chapter 10. I mean, Jehu is wiping out Baal worship left and right. But look at chapter 10, verse 29. Look at verse 28. Thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. What a statement. (laughs) Guy did the job. But verse 29, However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves that were at Bethel and that were at Dan, the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Wow. He, he did the will of God. But, Verse 31, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. You know, every time we read about someone in the Bible, aren't we normally disappointed where it's all over with? We read about somebody and, man, this guy's doing all kinds of stuff for God, and he's tearing it up, and then he blows it, right? There's a few exceptions, but most people in the Bible blow it where it's all over with that are serving God. And we learn again that the best of men are only men at best, right? That's all we are. And we see it again and again in the scripture. So, knowing that information, we learn to love one another and put up with each other's faults. We learn that we're we're people that are laden with faults and sins. We understand that we need to have compassion for each other. But we also learn this, the only one that will never fail us is the Lord, right? He will never fail us. Even though people will fail us, we will fail other people, as a matter of fact. All of us will, to some degree or another. Everything's not all bad in 1 and 2 Kings. There are good kings along the way. Look at chapter 12, 2 Kings. Good King Jehoash, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Jehoash did right. This is shocking. He did right in the sight of the Lord all his days in which, here's the key phrase, in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. That's why he did right. See, with proper guidance and instruction, he did. The, Jehoash wants to do the right thing. It shows the importance of discipling people, of mentoring people, of, of instructing and guiding people, doesn't it? That's what we're called to do. Left to themselves, people, new believers, are going to be hindered in their growth. That's where we come along, right? We imperfect people come along. We help them grow in grace. Chapter 15, Assyria begins making inroads to the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria was a dreaded military power, power in that time. And they, they conquered people. That's what they did. They destroyed people. That was what their whole thing was. And they began making inroads in, in Israel. Look at chapter 15, verse 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, that's the king of Assyria, came and captured Jon, and Abel and Bethmeaca and Genoa and Kadesh and Hatzor and Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to where? To Assyria, right? He, takes, he starts taking Israel, the northern kingdom, away to another land, Assyria. That's because of their continued resistance to God. The Lord begins his judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And look at chapter 17. He completes that judgment here. Look at chapter 17, verse 22. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants the prophets. So Israel was carried away in exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. That's the divided kingdom. And it ends that section with Assyria capturing the northern kingdom of Israel. And then look at the last and third division of First and Second Kings, the last days of the kingdom of Judah, chapters 18 and 25. Going to chapter 18, you have a it starts good. Chapter 18 through 20 talk about good King Hezekiah, a good man. Look at chapter 18, verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him. He kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. It shows you that even in a time of chaos and uncertainty and evil. Even when the majority are not living for the Lord, that it can be done, you can live for the Lord, right? You can follow him, even if you're only by yourself. And Hezekiah is doing this. He's facing the, the threat of the Assyrian army. They want to get him too. They want to get Judah as well. Hezekiah is king of Judah, southern kingdom. But the Lord delivers them from the arrogant Assyrians. After Hezekiah, we have two evil kings, Manasseh and Am- Ammon. Manasseh is a really bad guy. But then, after these bad guys, like an oasis in the desert, comes along good King Josiah. And there's a revival under him. Look at chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 24. Look what Josiah did. Moreover, Josiah removed the, the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. <clears throat> Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. He, a Great revival under Josiah. Now, I can't help but think, now, America's not Israel, I'm not saying they are, but I can't help but think about America when I read these kind of verses because America, as you know, if you if you if you stay up with the scriptures at all, is now bent on a course of destruction and judgment from God with all the decisions they make constantly about a lot of things. But that does not mean we should not be praying for our nation. Maybe God will have mercy upon us and give us a revival of turning back to Him. We never know. If he's going to show us mercy. But finally, in chapters 24 and 25, the end draws near for Judah. Look at 24:10. <clears throat> At that time, the service of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Here's Babylon now. We had Assyria getting the northern kingdom. Now Babylon goes up, they go to Jerusalem, and the, and the city came under siege. You understand, when they besieged the city, it, took, it could take several years. <coughs> verse 11 um, I'm sorry, they besieged it. Look at chapter 25, verse 8. Now, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was in the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, the temple, that uh, the glory of the Lord filled, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great great house he burned with fire. Somebody said that the book of Kings starts with the building of the temple, and it ends with the burning of the temple. That's a sad story. All this temple David wanted, all this temple that... Solomon took all kinds of preparation and time to build, dedicates it, gone now. This is a tragic story of a nation that turned its back upon God, even though they had all the opportunities in the world, prophets, good kings along the way to help them to come back to God, preach to them to come back to God. And yet, they, they fell. How the mighty have fallen. Now, we ask this question, does this mean the Lord's not sovereign? We look at this. Things got out of his control somehow? No, he's sovereign, but when he says, Obey me, obey my will, he means it, right? He's not like the parent who threatens his child with punishment and then doesn't come through when his child disobeys. The Lord comes through when we disobey. And he doesn't make idle threats. But He's also gracious. He's not done with Israel. Look over in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Romans 11, 1. He says in Romans 11, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes on to give an illustration about who? Somebody from Kings. Elijah, right? God hasn't rejected his people. Now, we've spent some time in uh, Psalm 119 recently enough to understand certain truths about God and his word. We've seen at the beginning of the psalm that the man is blessed, that walks in the counsel of, of God's word, that, leads a, that lives in accordance with God's word. He leads, he leads a blessed life, it says, a life that is you know, one with deep-seated joy, um, deep-seated happiness, contentment, peace. That joy comes from walking with God according to his word. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to have any problems or difficulties in life or suffering. We will because we live in a sin-cursed world. But nevertheless, you can have God-given joy through all of this. The psalmist of Psalm 119 was a blessed man, wasn't he? We saw that in a couple of sections. He obeys the Word of God. Uh, He prays that the Lord will establish his ways. He prays that God will keep him from his natural tendency of wandering away from his Word. He treasures the Word of God in his heart. He desires that the Lord might teach him his Word. We talked about this last week. He has enthusiasm for the Word that's contagious. He wants to share the word with other people. He says in in that psalm, he rejoices in the testimonies of God's word. He meditates in his statutes. Uh, He delights in his statutes. And he determines not to forget the word of God, right? Remember that from last week? All these things. But what the psalmist of Psalm 119 did uh, was what the nation of Israel did not do. They did exactly the opposite. The psalmist was a man of the word. For the most part, the people of Israel were just the opposite of that. They rejected the word. It's a great contrast between the people of First and Second Kings, with with the exception of a handful of individuals, and the person of Psalm 119, the man that kept the word. You know, we too today in our generation we're confronted by the truth of the Word of God. Right? We we, we come here every single every week. I'm telling you, there's we are. Uh, God expects that a lot of out of us, I believe, because we hear the word constantly. Right? And so the question is, how will we respond to that word? Israel failed. We have the opportunity today. How will you respond to the word of God? Let me ask you a question. Now. Do you love the word of God? Do you want to do what it says? Do you want to obey it? Is it your daily bread? Do you desire to do what the Lord has said? I hope that's the case with you tonight. Um, and remember, the word of God is everything to us. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Again, we are confronted by its truth, the truth of uh, the, the, the consequences, the tragic consequences of disobeying it. We pray that we would love you. We pray we love your word. We pray we follow what it says, knowing that your blessing abides upon us if we do. We pray that, we would, that Lord, you would, you would help us in this pursuit, help us to obey your word, give us the grace to do it, the strength to do it. We just pray we glorify you through all of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.